You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, So as was mentioned already a couple of times by uh, Christina, that this uh, is uh, Ascension Sunday. Uh, So we've been following pretty faithfully this year the historical uh, church calendar. And this past Thursday marked 40 days uh, from Easter, which is typically the time in which the church then celebrates uh, the Ascension. But for for us and for other churches, we choose to wait until Sunday when we're all already gathering to, to celebrate that event. Right? If we remember the story of Jesus, right? Jesus died, he was buried, uh, he was raised from the dead, and then he spent 40 days teaching and instructing his disciples and appearing to them and getting them ready for this work that they were going to do, right? Leading the church. And then, but on day 40, as recorded for us at the end of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, then at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascended into heaven. Right, you probably remember that story. He did not die again, right? But in his body, he was raised off the earth and ascended into heaven. Hence the celebration today of the ascension. That's what we are celebrating. But what are we actually celebrating when we celebrate the ascension? I think this was a question that I sort of had to ask myself in preparing this sermon, right? <laughs> what are we celebrating? Like, what are we talking about? What does the ascension mean? What does it mean that Jesus is ascended? What is he doing? What does that mean for us? These are the questions that come to mind. And this morning, I think we're going to sort of broach the subject of what is the ascension. And I think that this is a topic that's well worth study. And just as a testimony to you, uh, my study of these three action-packed verses in the book of Hebrews was really super beneficial to me personally. I think that you'll hear this morning as I connect themes and ideas in these verses to other passages in Scripture, that a lot of those connecting verses come from the book of Hebrews itself. Uh, And really, Hebrews became a book to me these past several weeks to really meditate upon. And I found myself asking a lot of the questions I just stated. What does it mean that Jesus is ascended? Like, what is he doing? Right? How does that, like, affect my life? Like, what does that mean for me? How do I apply that to my life? What does that mean? I think that through study and through the scriptures and through the Spirit's empowerment, I think those, the answers to those questions that came were even better than, than I could have imagined, right? I think a lot of times we set the bar for Jesus like right here, right? He's really great at like going up here, right? And uh, I think that we'll find that this morning. I hope that you will find that this morning as well. And I would greatly consider, uh, uh, encourage you to consider the ascension, if you have not spent time considering it, uh, to spend time studying and being built up by the risen and ascended Jesus, because it's a significant thing that Jesus is ascended. 
Uh, the book of Hebrews is a really a great place to start for that because it talks a lot about the ascended Jesus. And I know a group of women just did the book of Hebrews together, and I would encourage you to, to either connect with one of them or, or to go through the book uh, yourself. Uh, because this morning, though our topic is the ascension, we're in no way, shape, or form going to cover this topic exhaustively, right? This is a big topic. The ascension of Jesus means so much. It means, uh, in just in part, that he is reigning in power, that he is our advocate, which has already been mentioned this morning, that he's our mediator, that he's no longer in the tomb, but he's alive, that he's coming again, that he has sent his Holy Spirit, right? And on and on and on, the ascension means some pretty significant stuff if you call yourself a Christian. And so we're simply not going to be able to cover all of those topics uh, this morning, but we're going to probably touch on and mention a few of them uh, through the sermon this morning. The ascension of Jesus is, a, is important, and today through our passage, we're going to focus really most uh, prominently on Jesus's high priestly role now that he has ascended and what that means uh, for us. And we're going to tackle uh, this topic in three uh, simple points. We're going to talk about uh, where is Jesus, who is Jesus, and then who are we. I'll try to make the topic, the, the points this week, this week pretty simple, so hopefully we'll, uh, we'll find them simple as we go through it together. But really, where is Jesus, who is Jesus, and who are we? So first we're going to talk about where is Jesus? I want to tell you a little story. When I, my wife and I first started uh, attending reality, uh, myself as well as a couple other members spent some time going around Stockton, mainly the downtown in the south side, uh, talking to people and making like a little film. And we were like asking people about their stories, and then we were asking them who they thought Jesus was. And for the most part, the people that we interviewed, I could probably remember each and every one of their faces because they were super, super gracious and kind to us. And we just like walked up to random people with a camera and we're like, hey, can we talk to you for a second? And most of them just were like, sure, yeah. And they sat down and they really opened up about what their life experiences was like and what Jesus meant uh, to them. But I remember one woman super, super clearly. We were on the south side. We were at a park and she was there uh, watching her young son uh, play. And uh, we asked her, hey, could we ask you a few questions? She said, yeah, no problem. And uh, we said, we asked her, well, who is who is Jesus? And she said, you see this cross? And she pulled out a cross, a cross necklace, and she said, you see this cross? I don't want Jesus on this, on this cross. He's alive, and I believe that he is with me. And now we can argue about tradition and icons and church art. Uh, I tell this story not to debate whether or not we should use plain crosses or crucifixes. We have people as a part of our community that have come from the Roman Catholic tradition or the Eastern Orthodox tradition where crucifixes are present, so that's not my point. But my point is that she made a point about Jesus that was very real to her and is very real to us, and that Jesus is not dead, but he is alive, right? This is an essential part of, of what we know about Jesus, and it meant something to her that brought her great hope and comfort, knowing that Jesus was not dead, but that he is alive. And the scriptures present to us a Jesus who came, right? He came here, God incarnate, who lived perfectly, who died sacrificially, who was resurrected triumphantly, and who ascended bodily, right? Jesus is not dead. Jesus is not dead at the end of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, or at the end of the book of Acts, or at the end of the story of the scriptures. Jesus is alive at the end of the story Jesus is alive today. He is ascended. Jesus is alive. He is ascended. And this explains why we as Christians talk a lot about Jesus being alive, right? We celebrate Easter, 
but, we don't, but why we don't see him, right? This may seem weird from the outside, right? You guys talk about Jesus being alive all the time, but where's he at, right? And this is really the point and the topic of the ascension is that he is alive, but he has ascended into heaven at the right hand of the Father. That is where he is. But the scriptures describe the ascension in many different ways and with differing words. Even in the book of Hebrews, the writer describes it differently. And I believe the writers of the scriptures do this to help us understand the different angles of something, right? Like some things in the scriptures are really complex and it's difficult to use one analogy or one set of words to help us understand the full understanding of what something means. And I think the ascension is no different. So the writer of the book of Hebrews uses different language and different analogies and different ways for us to see what the ascension means. But we're going to really focus on one of those this morning. In our passage this morning, the words that were used to describe the ascension are these. In verse 14, at the beginning of the verse, it says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. So Jesus is described as our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. The writer of the book of Hebrews links the phrases great high priest and passed through the heavens uh, very purposefully here. He's, He's trying to tell us something. One of the primary goals of the writer of the book of Hebrews seems to be, as you read through the book, is to make connections to the shadows of the Old Testament and to see them fulfilled in Jesus, to see Jesus as superior to what has come uh, before and fulfilling what had come before. The Bible Project describes the book of Hebrews in this way, and if you have not uh, ever interacted with the Bible Project, I encourage you to do so. It's bibleproject.com. They have amazing videos that help to explain the scriptures. Well, their sort of summarizing note about the book of Hebrews is this. The book of Hebrews compares and contrasts Jesus to key historical people and events from the Old Testament. Through these comparisons, we see his superiority. He is greater than the angels, the Torah, Moses, the promised land, priests, Melchizedek, sacrifices, and the covenant. He is God's word, the hope for a new creation, our eternal high priest, and the perfect sacrifice. This is what the writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to get his reader to understand. And it's what he's trying to get us to understand in our passage this morning. Because he says that Jesus isn't just our high priest, but he's our great high priest. Which seems like a value statement, right? He's making a value statement about Jesus. He's not just a high priest. He's a great high priest, right? There's high priests in this book, but that Jesus is different than them. He is great. Jesus isn't just a high priest like Aaron and his descendants. He's better. He's greater. He's the ultimate high priest. And this value statement is justified by a few things that I'll mention now. And then really our second point, who is Jesus, really digs into this idea of why he is so great. It's justified in that Jesus has passed through the heavens. His ascension And the position that he has right now is the real justification for why he is so great. Because this language, passing through the heavens, sounds an awful lot like the language used for the high priest to enter the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelled in the Old Testament. Right? In the Old Covenant, the people of God were served by priests. Right? They were served by Aaron, Moses' brother, being the first of them, and then his descendants filling that role. Now, what is a biblical priest, right? The priests were men who presented the people before God, who represented the people before God, and then God before the people, right? That was their role. The priests were set-apart people who mediated the presence of God for the people of God. They were the planned access for the people to God. And so if I'm living in that time, if I need to get to God, 
I go through the priest. If I need to practice my religion, I go through the priest, or the priest instructs me on how to do that. Right? So in this vein, we see priests in the Bible, a lot of the times what they're doing is offering sacrifices. Right? That is how they did a lot of their worship. But they're also reading and teaching from the scriptures, communicating on behalf of God, and at times acting as a judge over the people in matters relating to the Torah and the law that God had given them. Largely, their duties were performed in the tabernacle, right, in the tent of meeting. And the temple, which had different delineations, both of them, that separated where certain people could go and where certain people couldn't go. Because there was, the, there was this place in the temple and in the tabernacle called the Holy of Holies, where only one man could go, only once a year, the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And to do so, he'd have to pass through a veil, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. Now, why? Because the Holy of Holies was where God's presence dwelled. That's where God was with his people. There's this theme in Scripture of God wanting to be with his people. It comes up over and over again in the story of God. He wants to dwell among them, he says, a lot of times. And we see examples of this in Scripture, right? God walked with Adam and Eve. He visited Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In the inauguration at Sinai of the Old Covenant, God's presence was with his people. That was a key component, right? He said to them, here's the law so that I can be with you. Here's the tabernacle so that I can be with you. And then eventually for them, right, here's the promised land so that I can be with you. And then finally in the biblical story, here is Jesus so that I can be with you and so that you can be with me. So the Holy of Holies in the temple is this place where God could be with his people. But it was restricted because of God's holiness, but not to be forever restricted. So where one high priest could enter God's presence once a year, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Jesus, the great high priest, has passed through the veil of the heavens and is ever in the presence of God. So this is a way in which Jesus becomes greater than our earthly high priest in that he's not just going into the presence of God once a year. He's not going through the veil once a year, but he has gone through the veil. He has passed through the heavens and he is ever in the presence of God. Right, hindsight really becomes 2020 a lot of the times when we read these things about Jesus because we see in the old covenant as the shadows and the types of what was to come in Jesus. But Jesus blows apart our expectations. And this is one of the aspects of why he is such a great high priest, is that he's no longer just one time a year, but he is ever in the presence of God. This sort of brings us to the second point, that if that's where Jesus is, the question is, who is Jesus? Like, who is Jesus? Why does Jesus have this kind of access? Jesus' greatness is not just justified by his access to the presence of the Father, but by who he is. And I would argue is more the point of our passage from the perspective of the writer of the book of Hebrews. And who he is is the reasons why and how he has the access that he has to the Father. Jesus is spoken about in this passage in verse 14 with two names. Let's read it again, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. First, he's called by his earthly name, Jesus, and second, by his identity as the Son of God. The person of Jesus is spoken of with many names and many titles throughout 
the, the epistles uh, here in the scriptures. Remember, the epistles were written by church leaders to other church leaders or to congregations. So for the most part, they were the in-crowd communication amongst the early church. So, so chances are when the church or church leaders received their letter, they knew the terminology of the church, right? They knew that when the writer said this, right, that he meant that, right? They knew the, the shorthand of the time when, he, when people described the things related to their faith. It's similar to how we today have shorthand in the church, whether we realize it or not. And the way in which the epistle writers write about Jesus varies, but the shorthand is known, but it's also very purposeful because the names and the titles of Jesus tell us a bit about who he is, right? Jesus is glorious and he's great. And all of the things that we, we call him and talk about him reveal a bit about his character that is a little bit different and nuanced from the others, right? We, whether we call him Jesus, or we call him the Christ, or whether we call him King, or whether we call him the Prince of Peace, or whether we call him the Messiah, right? He has lots of names. And so in our, this, our, our passage this morning, I don't think that the writer of the book of Hebrews was simply throwing names and titles at the wall to see what stuck, but he chose two very purposeful names for Jesus here. First, Jesus, his earthly name. Jesus' humanity is vitally important to how we perceive him and how he ministers on our behalf before the throne of God. The further description of him in our passage really is connected to his humanity and his human experience here on earth, to his incarnation. The high priest that ministers on our behalf, though he is very otherworldly, as we'll come to see, came to this world and he lived. The value of God being with his people is most poignantly pointed out and embodied in the person of Jesus, coming to be born like you and me, coming to grow up like you and me, coming to live like you and me, and coming to die on our behalf. His humanity is not an afterthought, but a God-ordained forethought from before the foundations of the, of the world. Excuse me. Second, his identity is the Son of God. The mystery of Jesus is not that he is merely human, but that he is also divine. He is the Son of God. Jesus is not a better version of you and me. He's not like humanity 2.0, right? He's not David 2.0, which I'm sure all of you are super thankful for. <laughs> Jesus is God incarnate. At the beginning of the book of Hebrews, the writer of the book of Hebrews describes Jesus in this way. Speaking of Jesus, he says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is the glory of God, holding up the universe. Like this is who Jesus is, and this is who came to earth to save us. He's amazing. And this is what we require, because we, we need a savior that can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Right, the idea that eventually some human will be born and he'll live perfectly to redeem us is not really a biblical idea, and it's not really an idea that like holds up very well in logic, right? If you look past human history, none of us are going to get there, right? We're not going to get there. No, we needed and we need a savior. And now as his people, we need a high priest who is like us in his humanity, but is very much not like us in his, in his divinity, the mystery of Jesus' humanity and divinity is the theology of the deepest and most intense kind. But it's, in effect, two sides of the same coin, right? It's these two natures that he holds perfectly in balance. 
that mean for us the best of him, that he knows what it's like to be a human, but that he is not like us, so he's able to do things on our behalf that we cannot do for ourselves. Now, how do we see these two natures worked out in the life of Jesus? And I think that's a really the point of this passage. The idea that Jesus has passed through the heavens implies that he was once on this side of the heavens. And it's really his experience on earth that the writer draws upon in verse 15 to provide some level of insight into how we should perceive our high priest. In verse 15, he says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. What was and is revealed during Jesus' incarnation helps inform us of what kind of ascended Jesus we depend upon as our high priest. It almost seems that verse 15 is there to say that though Jesus is the Son of God, though he is the glory of God, though he is the exact imprint of the Father, though he upholds the universe, though he is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, he's not foreign to our struggles. He's not aloof beyond our comprehension to ever hope that we could connect with him. He's all of those things. He is the glory of God. But he is Jesus. He is the first century Jewish rabbi who ate bread who healed the sick, who cried over Jerusalem and hung out with like a bunch of goofballs. Right? Jesus holds his humanity and his divinity in perfect tension, becoming for us what is the perfect eternal high priest. And the examples that the writer provides to us are two. He's sympathetic, and yet he is sinless. First, he's, he's sympathetic. At the beginning of the book, or after this, actually, in the book of Hebrews in chapter 5, the writer says this, speaking of Jesus, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Jesus, in his incarnation, experienced life in this world like you and me. He experienced a simple, if not impoverished life in a nowhere city like Nazareth. Most likely, he swung a hammer and performed fairly menial tasks as a carpenter or a worker with his hands. He stated that he didn't really have a home. He was sort of quasi-homeless for at least part of his life. He saw death and destruction under Roman occupation. He was constantly surrounded by sick and needy people beset with the frailty of the human condition. He was deeply moved by death and by the response to death by those that were around him. And he was deeply moved by the religious state of the people of Israel and mourned over them. Jesus knew and knows what brokenness and difficulty fills our lives by firsthand experience. And this makes him a sympathetic high priest who hears our painful, broken stories and weeps with us. That we know that when we enter the throne room, that the God that we come and that we seek and the high priest that mediates for us is not completely foreign to our experience, but knows. He knows that our stories are broken. He knows that our stories have difficulty in them. He knows what it's like to live in a world that is broken by sin and the difficulty that comes along with that. 
But he's also been tempted, yet he is sinless. Jesus was tempted like we are tempted, yet without sin. He was tempted in the wilderness after his baptism. And I'm sure that there are plenty of other temptations across this human experience not recorded for us. But he succeeded where we could not. And being tempted without sin. This becomes the other part of the human experience where we need a high priest. Right? We need a high priest who can minister, minister to us in our weakness and our brokenness. We need a high priest that we can run to when things are not going well. But more importantly, we need a high priest that can minister to us in our sin. He endured so that he can offer us help and mercy. It's told to us in the second chapter of the book of Hebrews this. Therefore, he, speaking of Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. There is help. There is help in our temptation from a high priest who has gone through what you have gone through, who has been tempted like you have been tempted, yet did it and, made, and went the distance and did not give in. There is help. He endured temptation so that he could be our forever perfect high priest. This is what it says in, in chapter seven of the book of Hebrews. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He, we're not getting another high priest, <laughs> like, he's it. He endured, he lasted, he went the distance and came out sinless and died and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father so that when we go to him and we confess our sins as our high priest, he has already made the sacrifice for our sins. The forgiveness is waiting for us and has been applied to our account. He is a great high priest. Now, some may come to this point and feel perhaps a little let down because we may say, how can Jesus really be sympathetic? Or how can he offer me real help or real mercy when he hasn't failed and hasn't had to deal with failure? I think I wrestled with this question myself through, this, uh, through the study of this passage. But many commentators made a point that I think is really valid for us this morning, is that Jesus had to endure further than our weakness fails to accomplish a sinless life unto death. That, right, like, when we are tempted, there is a point in during our temptation where we fail and we stop being tempted and we give in. But Jesus was tempted further above and beyond where we have been tempted because he did not give in. And his temptation goes much further, is more painful and more difficult because he didn't give in. This is what one of the commentators said of this. He says, it is the love that suffers not the weakness that fails that is able to help us. And this is true of Jesus. It is his love that he suffered and endured through temptation 
that is able to help us. We do not want a high priest who has failed. We want a high priest who has endured and is sinless and then can offer that righteousness to us. And that is who Jesus is. His enduring of temptation lasts so much longer than ours since we give in so much easier, making him so much more equipped to aid, provide mercy, and help having gone the distance. So that is who Jesus is. Like, he's amazing, right? He is great. He is a great high priest. He is both human and he is divine. He, he comes with, two, with us with those two natures and the, perfect, the perfection of those two natures to help us. So I think now what we need to notice about this passage is where are we in this passage? And what does this mean for us? Something to notice about this passage is the heavy use of plural pronouns. Right? There's a lot of we's. There's a lot of us's. There's a lot of ours. What the writer is inviting us into is not solo Christianity, but communal life Christianity. That we access the high priest, we come into his presence, we practice our religion, we do the things that he's gonna call us to do in a minute, but we do it together. We do it supporting each other. We do it encouraging each other. And also notice the possessive nature of the way in which he refers to our relationship with Jesus. He says, since then we have a great high priest, since then we have a great high priest. For we do not have a high priest who is unable, and so on. The writer is not communicating any sense of timidity or ambiguity as to our relationship with Jesus. He is ours, and we are his. We no longer need to hide in the darkness or act unsure of who we are called to be. And the first step toward that is recognizing that Jesus is ours that he is our high priest, that this is reality, that he himself has set himself up as our high priest. We are not compelling him to do so. We don't gather here on Sunday morning and go, Jesus, would you please be our high priest this morning? No, he is our high priest. And this is a position for which he endured the cross, for which he was raised, and for which he is ascended. We do not, we do not need to conjole Jesus into being our high priest or providing us access to the Father. He is our high priest, and we must exercise our faith. I think the, the, the sooner we get to realizing that, that this is our reality, that this is the reality that we exist in together as, his, as sons and daughters of God, I think the sooner exercising our faith is going to become much easier and more natural to us. When we stop needing to try to convince Jesus of being something for us and recognize that he is that, not because of something that we have done, but because of all that he has done. And exercising our faith and exercising this in our lives is really the line of the encouragement that the writer provides for us this morning. First, he says to us that in light of all that Jesus is and in light of Jesus being our great high priest, let us hold fast our confession. This is the first thing that he encourages us to do. Since we have the awesome crazy, incredible, great high priest in Jesus, let us hold fast our confession. The idea in the original language is to take up with power or to own it, or as Paul tells us, to put it on. Because Jesus is ascended, what does the world have to offer us? 
Because Jesus is sitting enthroned, mediating between us and God, what do we have to fear or where else could we possibly go to find hope in this world? Take what you know to be true, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take it up with power. Own it. Put it on. Surround yourself, mind, body, and spirit in the gospel so that you do not waver or find yourself fallen in temptation. This is his encouragement to us. Since Jesus is enthroned, since Jesus is next to the throne as our high priest, own what you know to be true about him. Matthew Henry says this, let us hold fast the enlightening doctrines of Christianity in our heads, the enlivening principles of it in our hearts, the open profession of it in our lips, and our practical and universal subjection to it in our lives. This is what it looks like to hold fast to our confession, to hold fast to what we know to be true about Jesus, to hold fast to the gospel. The ascension should not produce in us a timid faith, but a robust, full-bodied faith that invades every fiber of our being and changes our lives from the inside out. This is who Jesus is. He is enthroned, and that changes our lives. Secondly, let us then with confidence draw near. This is the second encouragement. In verse 16, the writer says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here is the invitation to come into the presence of God. This is our high priest saying, come, draw near. No longer are we watching as one man goes into the Holy of Holies once a year. The writer of the book of Hebrews is saying, high priest Jesus is welcoming you in. Draw near. Draw near in confidence. Draw near knowing that your high priest is present, that he's sympathetic, and that his blood covers anything that might condemn you. We do not draw near because of what we have done, but we draw near because of all that Christ has done on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 to 21 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, the veil being torn during Jesus' crucifixion didn't mean that we come into the presence of God without a high priest, but that we come into the presence of God because we have an eternal high priest. I think something that's like a penny that dropped for me this week. You know, I always really thought that it was like, well, Jesus died on the cross, and then I just like saunter into the presence of God but it's really not so. We come into the presence of God because we have a high priest. We have high priest Jesus who is perfectly uh, welcoming us into that presence and calling us to draw near with confidence. And the idea here is not, we'll come in on Sundays, draw near on Sundays, draw near on Wednesday nights. But the idea is to continually draw near. That this is what we do as followers of Jesus, that we continually draw near to the throne of grace. 
that we continually draw near with confidence because of all that Christ has done on our behalf. Finally, let us receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. This is the final encouragement. What is the promise when we draw near? Maybe another way of looking at it is, what do we expect when we draw near? Some of our internal narratives are that we expect condemnation. Or we expect that when we draw near, the list goes up of all of the things that we have done wrong. And so we're afraid. We don't want to really draw near. Right? I'm okay with him drawing near and her drawing near and them drawing near. But me, I think, I, I think I'm good right here. Some of us expect arm's length relationship at best. Right? We experience relationships in this world and they haven't been so, so great. So why should I draw near when I'm just going to be kept on the outside of relationship with God? Or some of us just expect to be burned up on the spot. Right? I might put myself in that category sometimes. I think we have a lot of internal stories that tell us what we should expect when we enter into the presence of God. But what is it that you are promised? What is it that you are promised when you draw near with confidence? Mercy and grace to help in time of need. That is what you are promised. Who is in need this morning? I am in need. I am in need. I think that we need to remind one another that there is mercy and that there is grace through Jesus Christ. Because the story is this. Right? Jesus lived perfectly. He died sacrificially. He was raised triumphantly. And he has ascended bodily. And what he says to us, his followers, is come. Draw near and find help. Because I know from my experience that you need help. And I'm here to offer it to you. I am here to offer you mercy, not getting what you deserve. I'm here to offer you grace, getting what you don't deserve. And all you have to do is draw near because I've done it all. Let's pray.